Welcome to the Power of Property podcast. I am your host, Ellie Mackay, a property investor and developer. And this podcast is for anyone who shares my passion for property. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started, I want to take you to the next level. I'm going to be bringing some real chat with some of the UK's leading property entrepreneurs. We'll be sharing wisdom and industry insights without any of the BS. Property's absolutely transformed my life and I know it has the potential to change yours too. Enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Ellie Mackay and I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, the wonderful Gavin Gallagher. Now this one is for all you property fans out there because Gavin has got over 25 years extensive um, experience within real estate. Um, He started, uh, from a standing start, he's created over um, £65 million worth of assets. He managed to to lose it all. I think you were minus 16 at one point, Gavin, and it's, it's, it's certainly been a baptism of fire for you but like a phoenix rising from the ashes you've uh, rebuilt you've regrouped and you're doing some phenomenal stuff so it's a an absolute pleasure to have you with me today thanks ellie it's great to be here <laughs> now i believe that you were first your interest was first peaked in property back when you were a child and a, a road trip to manhattan is that correct yeah, that was it. I mean, it's funny when you're a kid, you don't really know anything. You just want to be like an astronaut or whatever. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't clear to me the path I was going to take. But my my father was in property and uh, and my grandfather was a house builder. So there, it, there was in the family. But, yeah. you know, I used to visit housing, house, building sites and things like that. And, and I wouldn't really pay any attention. You know, I'd just be playing in the scaffolding or whatever, doing the fun things that kids do in building sites. And uh, and then it was a trip, a family trip abroad um, to Disney World. And we stopped off in Manhattan and New York for, you know, maybe two days or something like that. It was like a stopover. And that just blew my mind. I was walking around the streets, you know, staring up at these skyscrapers. And I think it was around 14 or 15 at the time. And it became absolutely crystal clear that that I wanted to be in a business that actually built something like this, you know. And so it was, um, I came back from, it's funny, I didn't know at the time, but what happened is I came back home and I started drawing these skyscrapers. I started drawing scale drawings of, of skyscrapers and I used to compare them with like the tallest building in Ireland at the time. And it was this tiny little 15 story thing and against, you know, hundreds of stories. And I can remember I, I did this, you know, obsessively for months and months. And I'd be making it even more accurate and uh, drawing every single floor in and all this kind of stuff. And I can remember people starting to say, Gavin, you're going to be an architect. And I was like, oh, really? Am I? Mm, that's interesting. And it just got into my head that, okay, I'm going to be an architect, it seems. So that's what's going to allow me to do this kind of thing all the time. So um, fast forward a couple of years and I started studying for my leaving certificate, which is kind of the, the same as the A-levels or whatever in the UK. And uh I was at that point where I was being told, you know, it's quite a lot of points to get into architecture, Gavin, you know, you better buckle up and (laughs) uh, and start putting the head down. So it was, I was a very, very poor academically sort of student prior to that. I used to kind of like just be so kind of ADHD, I wouldn't have any concentration or anything. And then suddenly absolute laser focus in order to get the points I needed to get into the college. And so got into college and started my journey to become an, an architect. 
Wow, it's really interesting you say that because here are a lot of high performance people saying the same thing, specifically around the kind of ADHD and the lack of focus. But I think it, it, sometimes it's not until something really piques our interest or we have that incentive that we can really knuckle down and um, start to excel. But you, sadly, due to personal tragedy, I think, were you 21 when your dad passed away rather unexpectedly and that, that was it exactly and that, that was actually where I, what kind of turned you know changed direction for for me in a big way because my father went to uh, Africa on a trip mm. around about the same weekend that I was turning 21 and I can remember him having a conversation with me before and saying listen I'm actually going to be away for your birthday is that okay and I was like oh yeah dad it's no problem at all um, I'm going to be getting, you know, a couple of kegs and we're going to have a party and the lads are all going to come over and stuff. So it was kind of just, your, you know, your typical 21 year old had a great night partying, uh, lots of friends late night. Next morning, I wake up pretty hungover, groggy, and it's the phone ringing and it's my mother in hysterics that dad is critically ill in hospital in Zimbabwe. And he is, he's got internal hemorrhaging, he's bleeding, he's, he's throwing up blood, he's all this kind of stuff. And literally the hospitals in Zimbabwe, this is back in 1993, absolutely not kitted out for any kind of serious illness like that. And so they, we, my mother just assumed he was going to die in the hospital bed in Africa. And she was on the next plane down there with um, my dad's brother. And they flew down and they they had to, they just went through hell, basically having to bribe um, hospital jets and all sorts of stuff to try to get pilots to take off and bring dad to a, a better hospital in Johannesburg. And um, so it had a terrible effect on my mother. It really, it, it created a lot of stress and tension in her. And prior to that, she was kind of pretty easygoing and suddenly she's thrown into the deep end. Um, a couple of months later, my dad, he made, we made, to, we got him back to Ireland but his, the damage was done and his health just continued to kind of decline and decline. And in November of that year, a month before Christmas, he died. And, um, and we were all, you know, devastated. Obviously, we've lost our dad and my mom's lost her partner. Um, but then she opened up the post. Um, you know, all of the posts have been piling up for those months. And suddenly she's like, OK, better open the post. You know, I'm now responsible for all this. And it's, you know, the banks saying, you know, your loan of two million is due and all this because dad was a bit of an entrepreneur and he was doing construction projects and he was seed investor in in various projects and various companies and it was just it was a very very it was he was juggling a lot of balls in the air at the time and suddenly he he's dead it was completely unexpected and suddenly you're, you're kind of thrown into the deep end so myself and my mother basically my mother more so to be to be fair to her she wanted me to finish my studies she was quite insistent that I get my degree rather than leave college right there and then. And so, um, so I did, I went back, st studied, um, completed my architecture and then came out. But the day I came out, she said, okay, there you go. Now take over and just run, run the show and just like take the stress off my shoulders. And so that's when I got involved in basically trying to write the ship, um, at that stage because it was pretty bad, um, we, we, you know, dad had made a lot of investments. We had had to kind of get out of some of them just to kind of keep the wolf from the door. And it was disappointing to, you know, sometimes you sell out of a, of a, of a property or a company and it turns out that you, you sold out way too early or way too you know, below the value and stuff. And so a lot of these companies that 
dad had been in actually went on to to do incredible things but we got out at you know peanuts and so it was a real challenge for quite a few years and i just started to to dabble then in property i started my own architectural practice very small modest firm um just looking to do kind of house extensions for for families and stuff like that and at the same time i i went and i bought a little site in the west of ireland and that little site i got planning permission for and i i bought it for 25000 and within a couple of weeks i, I was I had the permission. I went to this local uh, to this local auctioneer and said, "You know, how much is it worth? What can I what can I build on this?" And he turned around like a day or two later and said, "I've got a buyer for you, hundred and twenty five And I was just like, "What? You know, blown away that you can make hundred grand so quickly." I was earning about you know ten thousand a year as an architect prior to that. I mean, it was it was peanuts, yeah. I was just going to say, I think I've heard you mention before as well, uh, around that sort of time when you like to see we're just doing the, the smaller scale projects, you know, Aunt Dorothy's extension, et cetera. And, and you were literally working with clients that were trying to scrimp and save every single pound. And you might be getting a three or four thousand pound fee at the end of it. And then almost by chance, you've stumbled across this small development and just made that hundred thousand pounds. And it just expanded your thinking so much, didn't it? But like, Totally, yeah. It is how quickly it kind of spiraled from there as well, because did you not like buy a site in the November and then flip it in the January and net like a two and a half million pound profit as well? That's right. Well, that's um, I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit, but I, I suddenly I learned, you know, that it's funny. I, I had weighed up architecture and property development as the two things I wanted to do. I even called my company. Galdivar, Gallagher Development Architecture. That was kind of my my attention span was like evenly placed on the two. And that's what I honestly thought I was going to be doing. Um, but then I saw the the massive imbalance in the value that the people value architecture versus what you can do in development. Mm-hmm. And and so that I, you were right. I was earning, you know, peanuts. I, I remember arguing with clients over like a thousand euros kind of of an extra fee because they, their budget had gone way over and I'd done all this extra work. And I can remember just thinking, you know what, just forget it. And around the same time, I got this hundred thousand windfall from this development. And I suddenly realized, whoa, these two are, these two uh, activities are not equal. And I just decided there and then that, okay, I think I'm going to, you know, turn away from architecture. I'll finish out what I'm doing with the various clients that I have, but I want to go all into property. And uh, and so I basically repurposed the firm to be more of a development management business. And so I was acting, I was going out there providing services as a developer, but I was actually finding the deals, putting the money in myself. And then I was bringing in, say, a partner who would put in 50%. And so the two of us would be 50-50 venture partners, but I would be, the development partnership would be paying my for my services. So yeah. I was getting paid kind of twice. And I did this and it just kind of spiraled. It just, it was the perfect timing with the Celtic Tiger. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, for those of you who don't know the Celtic Tigers, it's just this crazy explosion of growth in the Irish economy at the time when we were coming out of, you know, years of kind of a depressed economy. And suddenly there was this catch up with the Euro zone and all that. And um, it was quite incredible, just the speed. You could make so much money so quickly. And uh, I, like you were saying, I, I found this deal. I bought this property. I put an offer down of nine fifty. I ended up securing it at one point two million, and uh, I, I had moved very swiftly to secure this property. 
And the day after I closed the deal, I was having a kind of a few drinks with my solicitor, kind of congratulating one another for a great job done securing the property. And I get a, a call from a, an, an agent friend of mine and he goes, did you just you know buy this property? And I said, I did. And he goes, he called me a bollocks <laughs> and he just said, what are, you know, you've, you, you've after like napping that out from underneath the nose of one of my clients. And he says, they really, really want it. And they were, they were just like talking to committees and they were looking at all this kind of stuff. And so they, um, they want the property and they want to buy it from you. So they'll, you know, what are you, what are you going to sell it for? And I was honestly looking at turning a nice profit of like a million, maybe 1.2 million on this. And I said, you know, why would I sell it? You know, I've, I've got this project, I've got the architects appointed, all this. And, uh, and, you know, jizzed it up a bit. And uh, anyway, we agreed on terms. And two weeks later, or no, six weeks later after that point, there was a 2.5 million profit in my bank account. And I, I just, the, the world had basically changed in the space. <laughs> it was just, it was crazy. And the problem is, is not the problem. I mean, you've got to understand like, so that was one deal that crystallized there and then, but I actually had multiple fingers in multiple pies that were all running along doing something kind of similar at different time frames. So one, you know, a month later, I would get permission that would suddenly revalue a property higher. Uh, six months later, I'd sell another property and I'd crystallize this thing. So in the space of a couple, uh, maybe three years, I, you know, I probably pulled in about 10 million in profit. And in that time, I had all of these different assets out there and they were just, I was growing as fast as possible. I was super aggressive. I was using a lot of bank debt and yeah. I had grown my assets to about 65 million in total before 2008. And that's when it all kind of went pear-shaped. Oh, yeah, it's interesting because you were also, I think you were netting about a million just in passive income, weren't you? And in addition yeah. to your flips and everything else. I was, I was specializing in, in uh, retail property. And so yeah. I, I, I had, a, instead of having houses and uh, residential units around the place where you're collecting rent and stuff, I would do uh, deals, commercial deals. And it would be with, I would try to do it with banks who would have, you know, branches, or I would do it with, organizations like blockbuster at the time and uh, there was organizations like spar and stuff that would have you know convenience stores so you were dealing with big kind of um, entities that could afford you know 60 100,000 euro in rent and in some cases some of the banks that I had rented to they were paying me 300,000 a year in rent mm -hmm. and these guys would pay you four checks a year and that was it that was the mm -hmm. sum total of the workload that was involved once you got them over the line four checks a year, paid in advance, and it was a full repairing insuring lease. So I didn't have to insure the property. I didn't have to repair it. I didn't have to do anything. All I had to do is make sure they pay me those four checks when they, when they came due. So life was pretty good. And, um, and by that stage, yeah, it was about a million a year um, coming in in income and, and literally nothing to do. I didn't really need a team around me because of the, of the way those checks were coming in. Now, I did have the development management business, which mm -hmm. needed a team. So I did have a couple of mouths to feed uh, to keep the show on the road there. But that was kind of like my deal flow was coming from that. So by having all of these, um, you know, by having all these clients that were coming to me and say, Gavin, we want to do this project. Will you come in? They would give me, you know, a leg of the deal. And I'd say, yeah, mm -hmm. come in and I'll bring in my team with me and we'll run the whole show for you. And so it was a very, it was a great model and it worked very well. But of course, when the timing is great, everything looks great. And, yeah. uh, and sure enough, it turned pretty bad then.
That, that's what I love about your story because you're very open about your sort of rise to the top, if you like, and, and equally as open about um, what, what then ensued because you're very much living your life. And I don't think that's necessarily something to, to be ashamed of. But, but you know, you, you had condos in New York, you had multiple properties, you were traveling first class, you were a 35 year old um, young man living your best life but you've taken so many lessons from what happened next and there's so much value in your story it's not just a story there's so much power in that because your mission which I will let you you sort of explain to the listeners is very much about educating people not to over leverage within property and and also the mindset it takes one to achieve success but more importantly and I think this is the the thing that's going to really resonate with the listeners it's it's how you rebuild so can you talk us through what happened next Gavin? Yeah it was um, I, I I kept on growing and growing and growing in the business and, and I went after this huge project in the south of Spain and uh, the, the prices in in Ireland to me at the time seemed pretty high and I started saying you know I've got to look abroad to look for value but of course when you look abroad for value you don't realize you're looking at another market that is experiencing the same kind of ridiculous pricing but because you're not familiar with it it looks fine you know so Mm -hmm. I went over to Spain saw this opportunity and jumped in with both feet and it was a 42 million um, investment in a shopping center that was still under construction so I I put down a deposit and I had uh, to put 12 million of equity in and then 30 million of debt from multiple investors who all came on board. And um, Lehman Brothers, the week that we were kind of closing out the deal, Lehman Brothers collapsed and it just turned into an absolute total nightmare. I had had, I had been flying around the world meeting with the likes of Gucci. The, I met with the, the head of real estate for Ralph Lauren, all of these big brands. I was trying to build this kind of luxury boutique promenade that was a waterfront promenade in the south of Spain with a marina right in front of it. So it was going to be absolutely beautiful. And I thought it was the perfect setting for all of these kind of luxury brands. So I was meeting all of these guys. They were all very, very interested. And then when the recession, you know, when, when, the, when the big bang took place and Lehman Brothers collapsed and, and there was the credit crunch, every single one of them fell like dominoes. And it was just once Ralph Lauren pulled out, oh, well, Gucci can't go in if Ralph Lauren's not there. And there was all these kind of codependencies that these guys work with. And they, they're only there if somebody else is going to be there as well. Mm-hmm. And it just like felt like a deck of cards and suddenly I was left with 42 million property and I had no tenants, not a single tenant. And um, in order to get anybody to sign up as a tenant, uh, it was it just proved impossible because nobody wants to be the first tenant in a lineup of 42 units that have mm. no, uh, like no next door neighbors, no other reason to be there, no restaurants, bars, anything. So I actually set up my own uh, business and I partnered up with a lady I knew down there who was interested in the fashion business and we actually opened up a ladies boutique and it became kind of like a I suppose the the catalyst for getting others but we were just fighting a losing battle and even though I did secure a number of units over the coming years it just it was like trying to hold back the Atlantic Ocean it was impossible mm-hmm. and the the project ended up failing we lost every penny of our equity and the bank never actually went through with the full deal Um, the deal had been contingent on us getting all of these tenants when the tenants weren't there the bank pulled out of the deal i ended up having to restructure the deal with the vendor who was selling it and he didn't want to lose 
you know, the, the, the small amount of money that we had left with our equity. So he was open to restructuring it in some way. But then we ended up losing everything after years of trying to kind of fight it. But that wasn't all that was going on. I was concentrating there. But meanwhile, the Irish market where I had all these other assets, all of those were kind of going south as well. And even the ones that were paying me you know, a huge amount of rent, they went into technical default because the value of them, you know, say if a property had been worth five million and I had mm. a loan of four million on it or something like that, mm. the value went down to about 3.5. So you're in technical default, even though you're paying the interest and the loan, you're making all the payments as you should be, but technically you're no longer in compliance with your terms. So the banks started forcing me to sell property and it just was like this house of cards started to come down. So sure enough, the that put pressure on my family life and everything like that. I started having to travel looking for investors. So I went to the Middle East and I started to spend a lot of time in the Middle East trying to recruit investors who would come in and save the day for me. Um, being away for weeks at a time and stuff like that didn't help my marriage. And my marriage collapsed, which was... Um, which is one of the terrible kind of uh, things that happens as a result of, of these kind of stresses that you go through. And all the while I was thinking to myself, you know, just two years ago, here I was, you know, thinking I was at the top of the world, flying first class, you know, to my house in Spain. And I had my big mansion in the South, you know, in, in Ireland and, and how quickly it all turns. And, it, you know, it's very easy to get depressed and mm -hmm. to feel kind of like that it's impossible to go any further and, and I did face some of those dark moments when I kind of thought, you know, I don't know if I can get out of this. I, you know, I started worrying that my kids wouldn't be able to go to the school that I had gone to because I wouldn't be able to afford the fees and all of this. And you start really working on yourself. So it, it kept on getting worse and worse. And I can remember at one stage I had to do a report for my banks um, and it, I had been giving them these net worth statements where you give your assets and your liabilities and you give this like in black box at the bottom that would be, you know, I'm worth 20 million or whatever it would be in that sum. And I, over the years that I've been growing and growing and growing and I did it and I look, I could not believe, I thought I'd miscalculated and it was a red minus 16 in the mm. box. And I can just remember thinking like, oh my God, how have I done this to myself? How have I gotten myself into this situation? And uh, I mean, long story short, it went on for, it was like a death by a thousand cuts. It went on for many years that it sounds like a big boom. You're at minus 16, yeah. but actually it's a slow, steady decline as you go down to get to that level. And you keep thinking that you're going to get yourself out of it or the market is going to suddenly turn. But in the case of the credit crunch, it went on for six years. And so for six years, I was fighting these battles and it just did not, you know, the values didn't come back. And they were forcing me to sell property after property. And so my net worth was getting, you know, lower and lower and lower. And they were offloading properties at, you know, below market values and stuff, in my opinion, certainly below the value of the loan. Mm -hmm. And so they were telling me that the property's now gone, but you still owe us this, you know, big chunk left over. Yeah. So it was a nightmare. Went on like that. And I kind of hit rock bottom when they, they did this thing called a full rental sweep where every single penny of the rental income that I was collecting no longer went into my bank account to be distributed where it needed. It was actually sucked straight into their bank account. And so it meant that I had absolutely no access to any funds at all. And even things like paying property managers and stuff like that, that wasn't possible now. The property managers had to apply to the bank to get paid by the bank and stuff. And the bank would 
make everything, you know, check everything and make sure like that. Are you sure that this isn't being funneled to Gavin in some way? There was such distrust in the banking system around about this time. And and I, I just I actually had to call on my brother and ask for his assistance and just said, like, I can't afford rent anymore. I was living in London at this stage and I'd been forced to sell my beautiful family home by the bank. And I was living in London and I had to come back to Ireland and I had to basically ask my brother to let me stay in his property um, rent free. And he said, look, get your get yourself back on your feet. And so that was the kind of the rock bottom moment. And that's when I just kind of suddenly realized, do you know what? There is nobody coming to rescue me here. There is. I was I was spending a couple of years blaming everybody else for my mistakes my mistakes i thought of this as this big pity party and Mm -hmm. like who who did this oh the bloody you know banks in america did this and they caused the economy to crash and the banks in ireland are just as bad they're like they pulled the rug from under me and all of these people are to blame not ever kind of thinking turn the the, you know the mirror on yourself and actually think about what were you doing how did you get yourself into this situation and so Can I just ask you, just from a mindset point of view, Gavin, because I've I've heard you speak about this before, and I don't know if you even grasp the magnitude of of what you've done mentally, because to be at that lowest ebb and to to continue not just to to fight back, to rebuild in the manner that you have, you know, your marriage has collapsed, you're £16 million in debt, you're living in one of your brother's property, you've you've had to go for handouts for all intents and purposes just to, just to, to... to survive financially on you know a very basic modest lifestyle when you're used to kind of jetting here there and everywhere and did you was there anything specific you did I know you sort of turned to fitness around this time but did you get into any sort of personal development or coaching how did you because it sounds okay to say this and I talk around the mental health and the the mindset a lot but there's a lot of people going out there at the moment due to the pandemic that have lost everything uh, and hearing some practical tools at how you do lift yourself back up, I think would be really powerful. Yeah. Well, the first thing to remember, I mean, I, yes, I'm very much interested in personal development and personal leadership. And I used to follow a guy called Robin Sharma and um, I, I went to one or two of his seminars and that was helpful because he just, he kind of reframes things and you kind of, one of the things that you have to do is, first of all, stop focusing on the stuff that you have no control over. And the stuff that I had no control over is like the, the, whether the banks decided to pull the plug on me or not, I have no control over it. So stop stop worrying about it. Like do what you can, obviously, to save yourself from any further loss, but only focus on what you can control. And I thought to myself, okay, what can I control? Well, I can control my mindset. I have a good network of people that helped me build before. That network hasn't been taken away from me. Um, I have knowledge. I understand how the process works. I understand various things. And so it's just a matter of time to rebuild. And then what you have to do is just no matter how dark it gets, because I was in a pretty dark place for a while, is that, you know, time moves on and it is only literally you're in this point along this line, like a train track. You're just at some point, uh, say in a tunnel. And if you just stay on the train, you're going to get to the point of light at the end. And so I just kind of said, kept on reminding myself, look, look at what I have. Okay. Okay. Yes. I've lost a lot of money. 
yes, I'm in this humbling situation. I've had to go and, you know, get a job that's pretty much, you know, at a fraction of what I used to be earning. Um, I'm living rent-free from my brother's generosity. Um, but I do have all of these skills and I have this knowledge and stuff like that. So it's just a timing matter. If I can do away with the impatience of wanting to kind of have it all back tomorrow, and if I can just get disciplined about my mindset, look at what I have. I have a, I have at the time I had three, I still have, I have three teenage daughters now at the time they were much younger and I got to see them every other weekend. And I used to sort of really lavish as much attention on them and stuff. And I thought to myself, okay, I've got three healthy kids. Um, there's people out there that are dealing with illness and all this kind of stuff. I've got a, I've, I've got a healthy body. And I decided to absolutely go all, all in on my fitness and my I felt that my physical health would manifest in a strong mental health for myself so I started going running every morning and uh, and like literally without fail up at the crack of dawn I get into I got into this morning ritual I'll get up at the crack of dawn and with a cup of tea or a coffee I would get out a journal and I would write all of these kind of positive notes uh, about my situation I would sort of say um, I am you know, I've got a fantastic family man. I have got, you know, I've got three healthy kids. I am you know, extremely knowledgeable about the property market. And you, you kind of build yourself up, use the language that helps you kind of build yourself up. Don't be using all this kind of, you know, negative language like I am a failure. I've screwed up. I've totally lost it all because that's not going to serve you in finding a way back at all. And so, it's just, I think patience and discipline is, a, is something that I talk about a lot. It's, and, I, and what, no matter what stage you're at, when you're starting out at the very beginning, you need that same patience and discipline. And I reflect on the mistakes that I made. I look back at the way that the, um, you know, I, I was a bit fluhulic, we say, in the Irish market. I was a bit too spend thrift. I would, you know, just, I want to go on a first class flight. Yeah, there you go, seven or eight grand. My daughter of two, seven grand for a flight seat for her. Yeah, yeah, it's no problem. Just, you know, we'll buy her a seat as well because they, at once they turn a certain age, you, you can't put, carry them on your lap anymore. So that's fine. We'll just buy a first class seat for her too. And it was like that. And when you look, when you're suddenly facing the difficult moments and like you're, you're, you're finding it hard to put together a thousand euro and you're thinking, I cannot believe I was throwing 20,000 on flights just a couple of years ago. And here I am now, you know, trying to kind of like scramble together, like just a thousand to pay for something. Mm -hmm. And so patience and discipline, you got to understand that the property market and pretty much every market, like whether it's investment market or anything, it's, a, it's like a cycle and mm -hmm. it goes, there's ebbs and flows, it goes up and down. And we have gone through this incredible bull market for the last while. And I have no doubt in my mind that it is going to come to a very, very sudden end that nobody expects, nobody sees coming. And suddenly it's going to be this big boom and suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, running for the hills. And that will happen and it's guaranteed to happen. And when it does, it'll catch people by surprise. And that is when your really aggressive, really impatient attitude towards making money is going to suddenly come around and bite you in the ass. And it's going to really come hard. You're going to learn some very humbling and very hard lessons. And so I now, in retrospect, I talk about my mission is, first of all, one of the re reasons I, I sort of started this mission is a couple of friends and family members and stuff actually took their own lives as a result of financial pressures and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and struggles that they were going through. Mm -hmm. 
And when you see that, and I saw it close to hand because I, I was friendly with the family members and stuff like that. So I could actually see the devastation that it does and what it leaves behind. So I kind of thought, okay, well, no matter how dark things were going to get for me, I wasn't going to do that to my family. Um, so you kind of, you move away from even thinking along that line, no matter how dark things get. And you start to think, you know what, I'm going to make this bigger than myself. This is not about me any longer. This is about me saving the lives of people who perhaps in the future could get into this situation. Mm-hmm. And there were there was quite a number of very, very successful property people in the Irish market who took their own lives. They just could not handle the you know the, the look of failure that they had when they were declared bankrupt or when they couldn't afford the fancy you know lifestyle any longer um you know partner you know marriages collapsed mm-hmm. uh, suddenly they had to take their kids out of the fancy school all of this kind of stuff and a lot of men in particular take that kind of failure very much to heart and and it damages their ego and part mm-hmm. of the reason it does that is because they built success financial success in particular they rolled it into their ego in such a big way mm-hmm. and that is one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is mm-hmm. make all of your success if you're doing really really well don't wrap your ego up in that like i that's when i turned to fitness i thought to myself you know what it doesn't actually matter how much is in my bank account i can still be fitter than anybody else I know. And I can still be an Iron Man who kind of goes out and does these kind of enormous events and stuff like that. You can't take that away from me. It doesn't matter what my bank balance is. And that is something that I can control. The commitment to the training, I can control. All of that kind of stuff, I can control. And so I focus on what I can control. And I try to share the message to get it out there to as many people as possible that yeah. it's not about the, the size of the bank account. It's, it's about you know, what you can control with your life and the people around you and just kind of make it about something other than financial success. I think he said so much there I'd, I'd like to unpick, but, you know, the fact that our identities are not linked to our successes and our failures, probably the most uh, powerful, powerful thing. And I think unless you've experienced that level of stress firsthand, it's perhaps difficult to comprehend it. But as a as a child, as a young teenager, uh, I sadly watched my parents go through bankruptcy. Um, they had a, a couple of retail units. They over leveraged. We'd had a pretty, pretty nice lifestyle growing up. Five star holidays, you know, nice big house, and then we ended up sort of um, having the bailiffs at the door to repossess our things. And it's only through speaking to my dad in particular afterwards that he told me that he'd really battled with those suicidal thoughts. Um, we've experienced something similar ourselves back in 2016 when a, a construction company went under and um, almost took our business down with it. They owed us a, a significant amount of money. And whilst there's learnings that you get with the benefit of hindsight, when you're waking up in the middle of the night with heart palpitations, wondering how you're going to keep a, a roof over your head, it's um, it's something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Do you think that do you still think that we're in a culture where people are still over leveraging and perhaps not not being not not being sensible in terms of how the market is likely to go? Because whilst none of us have got a crystal ball, ball um, I think, like you say, the economy is cyclical at the best of times, and what goes up must come down. And if your business model is based on a particular economic cycle, that's always going to be destined to fail. 
For sure. I think, first of all, I think young people in particular who haven't experienced the recession that we kind of went through. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of in my late 40s now. So for me, I saw the, the dot-com, you know, um, crash in 2000 and I saw then the, the 2008 crash and I saw how long it lasted and the devastating. But there's a lot of people who will, will have just, you know, graduated from college and they'll be out and they'll be dabbling in this market and they'll be out there thinking that, you know, you can't lose at the moment because the property market is on fire and they're making so much money and, you know, borrowing money. And I was, I met with a, a guy that um, he's in a, in a kind of a bank, uh, a lending kind of institution just yesterday. And we were chatting and he said that there's a guy, one of the, one of his clients, and it's like a gambling addiction almost. He says he's, he just, as soon as he makes money, he's straight back into them, borrowing as much as he can to go and roll into the next one. And I just said that they're getting nervous about him themselves. And I was just saying to myself, you know, this is, it sounds so similar to what I've seen before. And I think a huge amount of young people, they scroll through their Instagram and things like that. And they see these kind of images of guys getting out of a Lamborghini or getting out of a Rolls Royce. And, and they immediately go, whoa, that guy's successful. I want to have that kind of success. And I just sort of caution people to stop comparing themselves with photographs. That is somebody's, you know, highlight reel. They're putting their very best face forward. First of all, they could be renting the car for all you know. Second of all, there could be an enormous amount of debt on that car. And you just don't know. People put their best image forward. You have no idea what's going on. And a lot of the time, people like this are swimming naked underneath the water, you know? And <laughs> that's, you know, that's what we kind of say. And, and I kind of think to myself, so easy to kind of get caught up in this, you know, hustle. I think people call it hustle porn, where they kind of say, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm working so hard, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And you got to understand that if you want to have a successful career, it's it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. You can sprint and you can do really, really well in, you know, two or three years. But what's the point if you're going to give it all back then when you hit, when the recession comes or when some unexpected event takes place? Look at the event uh, events of early 2020. You know, nobody saw COVID coming at all. It came completely out of the blue. No warning signs, nothing. Suddenly, hundreds of thousands of people furloughed and the whole, you know, anyone who owns a pub or a restaurant or anything like that, they've all barely hung on if they have managed to hang on at all. Stuff can happen out of the blue. So don't get yourself into a situation that you cannot get yourself out of. And so going in and thinking to yourself, I can go and borrow on this and I can cross secure it on that and I can do all these kind of things. You might do that to secure, you know, your first deal. But once you've got yourself a certain level of stability, you've got to protect that and sort of, you know, use the assets that you have wisely. Consider them to be, you know, protected. Try to ring fence your stuff so that banks can't go after your assets if something goes wrong further down the road. And I see so many people, like one of the biggest mistakes I made was I kept on wanting to borrow more and more and more. And because I did that, I kept on saying, sure, you can use that asset over there. You know, you can cross secure it on that. And as soon as they do that, then when your project falters, they don't just take the project, but they take the thing that you've given them cross security against. And I would do that on another asset as well. And oh, like, let's do another deal. And the problem is, is that when everything is going great, you kind of think to yourself, uh, oh, you know, I figured out the, you know, the, the magic formula for, for making money. If I just keep on doing this, I'll amass, you know, tens of millions in no time at all. 
And the problem is, is just around the corner, there's some event going to take place. The, econo the economy, demand is going to fall off, whatever it is, and you're suddenly going to find yourself in the situation where something you expected to sell won't sell. Suddenly you're on the back foot. Something else has to sell now in order to kind of plug that gap. You can't sell that because the market is turning or whatever. And, and that's where it all starts to kind of fall down. So patience and discipline, long road, marathon, not a sprint, and just kind of pay attention to what's around you, what you have. Stop thinking about what you don't have. Stop looking at those you know, videos and on YouTube and guys flying private jets and stuff like that. You know, if that's going to happen, it's going to happen at some point in the future. You're not going to have it in the next year or two. And if you think you are, then you're lining yourself up for that huge fail. It's really interesting. I potentially go too far the other way with it. When people ask me for the details, the numbers for our property deals, I just I refuse to share them because I feel it's a very one-dimensional view. You know, you could make hundreds of thousands of pounds off of one deal or, or millions when you're operating at the level that you are. But people aren't taking into consideration, one, the work that's involved in making that, but all your other costs, your expenses, your wage bill, your, you know, your premises, what you're spending in your own education and development. So, you know, I always try to show a bit of a holistic view but what practical guidance would you give to the listeners about um over leveraging do you have a formula now that you you know is it a bit more risk averse it's well what i don't do is cross secure assets any longer mm. what i try to do is um if you're gonna i mean this goes against a lot of tax advice that you'd get um, at the time, we were told, oh, do everything in your personal name, because mm -hmm. then there's not that double taxation. You know, you get taxed in your company. And then if you want to get the money out of the company, you get taxed again. And that was the big thing that pushed everybody into doing things in their personal name uh, when this boom was going on. And of course, it made sense from an accountant point of view, you could save 20% of your of your gain. Um, but what it did was it opened up your all of your assets to basically being consumed by the bank when everything goes wrong. So buy things in entities that are standalone, like a special mm -hmm. purpose vehicle or special purpose entity or whatever it is, that gets bought there. It stands out in its own. If you need to go and put a deposit uh, down, then you go and you can lend your, your money from you personally into that company. That company now owes you that money back. And then you can go and borrow money in that company and it just stays in that company. Now, if the if the deal goes great, you get back your original loan into it and you won't have to pay any tax on repaying your loan, obviously, but you get all of the gain in that company. But if it goes south, which most people don't like to think, you know, most entrepreneurs are born again <laughs> optimists and we only see the future being great and rosy and all that. So you don't think to yourself, oh, when, when this goes south, I'm going to be protected. You're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm going to leave all this tax, on, you know, I'm going to leave all this tax be on the, under the table. Um, the reality is, is you just don't know when this market is going to turn. And when it does turn, you'll be able to walk away from that deal. And you'll, yes, you'll have lost your original asset, but it doesn't pull the whole thing down behind you. And I think that's one of the sensible things to do. Don't worry about the, you know, the immediate tax advantage that you can get because if it involves exposing all of the other assets that you've taken years to build up, then it's not worth it. Absolutely. There's some absolute gold in there. So what kind of projects are you working on now, Gavin? Well, I'm, I'm part of a family business and we have a, a commercial division and we have a residential division and I basically head up the commercial division. So I run a business park 
in Dublin called East Point. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a big park. Um, we built this place over many years and it's um, it's about 37 different buildings, office buildings. And we have the likes of uh, Google and Oracle and mm-hmm. big kind of tenants that pay you know large amount of rent every year for them and so there's um there's a lot of moving parts in this place it's you know before covid came along eight or nine thousand people a day would come into this park every day to work um we would we would put on bus service for them and all that so we have a shuttle Mm -hmm. service that would do three and a half thousand people a day and we have to manage parking for two and a half thousand cars every day and so it's there's quite a lot of moving parts but when covid came along it's been turned upside down and we've had the place has been empty for months. Now, thankfully, we work with big multinationals, so the rent hasn't stopped. But it's still a nerve wracking time because you kind of wonder, like, what is this going to do to the overall outlook on the market? How do people view offices going into the future? Because there's a lot of talk about the hybrid model and work from home and all that. Then on the other side of the business, we have a residential division and we're in the process of building 54 units, um, houses and a mix of apartments and duplexes and stuff like that in a site in Dublin. And and then we were in for planning permission for another uh, apartment development. And uh, we're trying to build about 100 houses or 100 units a year. That's the kind of the object. So it's constantly looking for sites building the site that you have and it's kind of a system of just keep on turning it over and keep it going like that and how do you raise the finance for your development combination of uh we we've got some banks but we also bring in investors and so we would be quite conservative the way we run our stuff and we would put so much of the money into securing the site ourselves, getting all of the prime permission and things like that and then when it comes to going on site get as much from the bank as possible, but then bring in investors to kind of fill in the gap. And then, so we end up with basically a carry in the deal because we've put it all together, we've structured it, and we're also the people that are going to deliver. And we we house, we have the team to actually build the houses ourselves. We don't hire in a contractor. We actually do the subcontracts and all that ourselves. And um, so it's a great model in that regard. Um, in terms of the commercial stuff, we often partner with, much bigger entities so big uh, firm like investment firms and pension funds and stuff they mm. would come in and we would tend to be like a junior partner who will manage the assets on behalf of the senior and so we've done some great things over the years with um we would go to say a big firm that's based in the either in london or in new york or something they'd come in they'd buy something for you know tens of millions and we would put in a, a slug of, of that as well, but we'd be getting fees for the management and we'd be also getting fees for the whole thing to kind of grow. And when it, when it grows beyond a certain level, it triggers kind of extra reward payments for ourselves and stuff. So it's a nice way to structure it so that you're kind of, you're aligned with your investors, but it allows you to bring in fees to kind of pay your your bills and your salaries and stuff. And then on top of that, you have the kind of the, the bonus that you get for performance. I like it. How have you found sort of slotting back into the family business after running your own entity for so long? Was it quite nice to be part of the team again? Yes, there's there's two sides to it. Um, 
it, I mean, there's always a little bit of politics with a family business. And, um, and I say that like with a smile because some of my cousins would be kind of like smiling uh, when I'm, as I'm saying this, but the reality is, is that we, we get along very well. We do disagree on occasion. I, I would still, even though what I've been through, I would still be seen as the kind of the swashbuckling one that, um, whereas they'd be more conservative again, um, in terms of the, um, uh, the good side of it is that, you know, it's it's fantastic just to kind of be in a big company that has kind of the wherewithal to survive through something like um, the pandemic. But the, the downside is that when I was doing my own stuff and I'd made all these kind of millions and stuff, I was the boss and I could just do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And I basically moved to the south of Spain. I had, a, I still have a villa down there, but when I had it at the time, I just didn't you know, spend months down there and nobody to answer to. Whereas when you're part of a bigger collection, you have responsibilities. And so you are expected to kind of like do your job and things like that. So I, I don't mind. I do enjoy the work that I do. I very, I very much enjoy the works, the, you know, the commercial side and working with big firms and their, their facilities people and, and just understanding how the big corporate occupiers think and, um, and the way the COVID has impacted them and, and thinking about the future, um, you know, the, the hybrid model. And I, I'm very interested in innovation and also the, the whole green side of things. I think we're moving towards a, a carbon sort of neutral or, or carbon zero world. And so that's going to have a big impact on the property market, I think. So I'm very conscious of that. I'm, I'm following that closely. I love that. And having came out of the other end of, you know, quite a stressful period, I know you've taken the learnings from it, but would you, with the benefit of hindsight, would you change anything or do you feel that those lessons will serve you moving forward? Oh, I've absolutely, um, I mean, there's certain things that I should have done differently. Uh, I mean, if I was to turn back the clock, I would have done nothing differently in the, in the ramp up period because it was a very, very sort of hectic period in time and, uh, you know, it was like spinning plates you know, you'd have six or seven projects on at any one time and you'd be just running around like, a, a you know, very, very hectic. Um, the problem that I had was when I allowed the ownership to, to can be contaminated and I'd allow one asset to cross secure another asset. And I was a bit, I lost my discipline. When I was starting out, I was very, very disciplined around the due diligence and everything like that. And then after a bit of success, you start to feel that you're, you know, you know it all and you don't need to, you just go on gut and things like that. And so I started to kind of think, oh, I'd like to buy that property over there. Wouldn't really give it much thought, just go ahead and buy it. And those ones, those final deals, those last few deals that I did, they're the ones that cost me greatly. And mm -hmm. if I had just been, if I'd stayed humble, probably if I had had a mentor, um, to, you know, behind me, tapping me on the shoulder and kind of saying, Gavin, no, 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 that's a stupid deal. Uh, because I had all this huge success, I kind of felt like I could do it all, you know? And I thought, you know, I've made millions, like who, I know what I'm doing, you know? And that's the big problem is, is that your ego gets in the way, you become kind of a little bit oblivious to the risks. And so I do think that looking back now, I probably could have, I probably could have held on to an awful lot more. I mean, I lost a lot of money in that recession. And I probably could have held on to a lot more of it if I had been more disciplined and if I had just, you know, 
paid attention to the ownership and the structure and things like that and not allow the the debt to contaminate each other asset stay humble what what great advice well final question for you gavin because we want to be respectful of your time but you mentioned there um you wish with the benefit hindsight that you'd had a mentor yourself with 25 years of extensive experience the highs the lows the learnings and um, is that a space that you would venture into to support and coach other young budding property entrepreneurs Yes, it is. In fact, it's something I'm actively working on at the moment. I'm putting a, a mastermind group together and, um, and I, I hope to launch that in the, in the coming weeks. But it's it's very much in that area. Uh, it's very much in the whole mindset and establishing confidence on the way up. But also then when you've started to make it, to have the, the wherewithal to kind of see when you're making mistakes and to stay humble and, and to remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so that's that's happening now at the moment and it's kind of come off the back of I, my own podcast that I started last year during the pandemic and as a result of that I've had so many messages of people sort of saying that story resonated with them and they'd like more advice on this and that so it's kind of evolved from that and uh, so yeah I quite look forward to to getting going on that. Well, you've been an absolutely fantastic guest. I just love the the, the openness in which you, you share your 25 years of, of wisdom. Um, the listeners will get so much value from it, Gavin. Um, I would urge everyone to connect with Gavin. Please, what's the name of your podcast, Gavin, and how else can people find you? My podcast is called Behind the Facade. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel just by my name, Gavin J. Gallagher. I put the J in there because there's quite a lot of Gavin Gallagher's in LinkedIn. So <laughs> if you're trying to find me, the J is important. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll actually, when, when this goes up on LinkedIn or when this goes up on your podcast, I'll go and uh, I'll drop in a link to the, the podcast. That's fabulous. Well, you've been an absolute pleasure to interview Gavin. Thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best for the future. My pleasure, Ellie. Look, look, lovely to be here. That concludes another episode of The Power of Property. If you've enjoyed today's content, please make sure you leave a review, subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone you feel would get value from it. It really does make a difference. Until next time, goodbye.